Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. I hope you've been enjoying season three of the regular show so far. We've had four interviews. I've really enjoyed all of them. Hopefully you have too. And I think there's quite a few good ones on the way. Some big things in the works, but you never really know how or whether those will turn out. Fingers crossed. It's hard to believe that we've only got about six weeks left in the year. I know people, at least some people, like to complain about the types of film music that have come out this year, as they do most years, but I think this has been another good year, and there's quite a few really good things on the horizon, hopefully at least, including Justin Hurwitz's score for Babylon, Simon Franklin's score for Avatar, and a few others. Candidly, I don't stay on top of forthcoming releases as much as I'd like, so listeners, I'm sure there's a few of you out there that do. But what I'll say is, there's probably a lot of good stuff on the horizon. Normally, November and December are very good months for film music. Speaking of which, that's what today's episode's about. Be going over some of the biggest, most notable, or just my favorite, scores that released from July through September of this year. And because Halloween was only a couple weeks ago, I'm first going to jump into some horror scores. So two witchy-sounding scores that really caught my attention were Clint Manziel's score for She Will and Dyaxon's score for You Are Not My Mother. Regular listeners and readers will probably know that I'm a big Clint Manziel fan, so every time he releases a score, I'm excited, and sure enough, every time, I'm a big fan. No surprise then that I really dug She Will. It seems that alongside In the Earth, he's dipping his toes more and more into a sort of folk horror sound. Although I'm sure whenever Clint's next score comes out, it's going to be something completely different. But for as long as he's doing this, I'm all for it. She Will is full of moody, spooky atmospheres, and it's really driven by these female vocalizations and glossolalia. It's something that I've really been talking about and supporting for quite a while, but I'd say this year in particular very heavily. I love the use of female vocals in particular, and how much of a range it brings and how much it can add to a score. It's been refreshing hearing more composers start to use this, but it's often in the background and often in horror and indie horror in particular. A few recent examples that come to mind are Tamar Kali's score for Shirley, Heather Christian's score for The Craft Legacy, Lucrecia Dalt's score for The Baby had a lot of really cool vocal aspects, and actually uh, Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury's score for Men. A lot of great vocals in all of those. And there's something that, with the familiar, the voice, being used in strange ways makes it that much more uncomfortable and discomforting. Gives you shivers. Dyaxon's score for You Are Not My Mother was really one of the cool surprises of the year. A friend of mine, maybe two or three years ago, gave me the inside scoop on her music, and I think at that point she'd only done short films. So this is actually her feature debut. 
It's very haunting, and it moves between alien, otherworldly, melancholic sounds on tracks like The Veil Between Worlds. Self-explanatory, right? And hypnotic melodies, particularly with the permutations of Char's theme, which moves throughout the score. And unfortunately, this is a score in a film that's been very underheard and underseen, because a lot of people do complain, and I think there's a validity to the complaint, that there really isn't as much thematic material in modern horror scores. But here's a score that has a very distinct, memorable, catchy melody running through its main theme, and yet not many people have heard it or seen the film. But especially going into the otherworldly sound, those can get quite guttural, like a rumbling from the deep insides of your stomach. And actually, when I first listened to it, I was blaring it on my speaker system downstairs. My wife walked into the room and asked, why does it sound like a doom-filled dungeon in here? Now, that will probably turn off several of you, but for those seeking something a little weirder, what more of a recommendation could you need? Another horror film, or at least film that dances or straddles the line of horror, there are people that say it isn't, but I think it is, is Nope, and Michael Abel's score for it. And this is Michael Abel's third collaboration with Jordan Peele, and I think it's the biggest one yet. Certainly from Abel's perspective, it's the one that's tread the most ground and looked at the most genres and really just done the most. You know, there's classic cinema and spaghetti western sounds, there's maybe one or two brief tracks that are these forays into, like, kitschy 1950s cowboy-inspired shows and tunes. And then there's a lot of horror dissonance and unsettling sounds. And I've heard it, and I know it works, but still, rattling those off, it sounds like something that should not work. It's such a bizarre mix, and yet it does. And it can always be dangerous going for more. More is not always better. But in this case, it works really well and just shows how good Abel's is. Another one that straddles the line of horror is Rich Vreeland's, aka Disasterpiece, his score for Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. And it's really funny. A lot of you will know his work from It Follows. Killer score in a great horror movie. But then earlier this year, he scores Marcel the Shell with shoes on. And it seemed like such a bizarre choice, and yet he absolutely crushed it. Just did a fantastic job. It's something that's really lovely and gentle and wholesome and fun. Like, totally different from the visceral and intimate horror of It Follows. And now he's back in the horror landscape with Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. And I think that Vreeland has a heavier electronic background. I think. And you can really hear it here, where there's a lot of electronic dance music in here. It's fun and pounding. And some of these are really infectious bangers. It's a big party aesthetic. But inside of these tracks is also a darkness and a mystery. It's slightly unsettling and pushes you on the edge. And I'll be honest, a lot of people liked it. 
I wasn't totally sold on Under the Silver Lake, both the film and the score, but it's one that I saw maybe three or four years ago and has stuck in my mind. I think really requires a rewatch and a re-listen. But when that came out, I was not sure where Vreeland's career was going to go. It Follows was obviously great. I was less impressed with Under the Silver Lake. Maybe that's not fair. But then this year in particular has made me go, damn, this guy is really talented and has a great breadth of what he's able to work in. So between Marcel and Bodies, I am 100% sold on the Vreeland slash disaster piece hype train. We've actually got quite a few more horror pieces to go. One of the other great surprises was Pearl by Tyler Bates and Timothy Williams. And this is in the, I don't know, X, Pearl, whatever you want to call it, universe that director Ty West created and started earlier this year with X, a film or a score that I actually did a review of several months ago. Music that was also by Tyler Bates alongside Chelsea Wolfe, a dark, doom, folk, metal musician. Very hard to describe her sound, but it really gets under your skin and it's unsettling. It's fantastic. And I think that was her first step into scoring at all. And so I was really let down that she wasn't returning for Pearl. She added an edge to X of these really visceral screams. Yeah, screams. And it made the film and the score really raw. Then you listen to Pearl and you go, ah, that wouldn't have fit whatsoever. Take the opening titles, and it's like a really fantastic, classic, early Golden Age piece. It's lush and romantic, and then it very briefly, briefly ends with a deflating sound as if everything's falling apart. And the score kind of goes back and forth between these elements of this grand romance of something that feels nostalgic and that you'd look on from 80 years ago. And then just like noisy horror elements. And it's such a strange combination of sounds or of styles that I don't really know if anyone's done. At least not that I can remember. And it makes it so damn cool to hear. Another really interesting horror score was Smile by Cristobal Tapia de Vir. Cristobal's done, I mean, a lot of fantastic stuff in his career. I think he's had a lot of extra attention from his work on White Lotus. But Smile, let me tell you, it's a score that it took a second listen to really set in for me. But it is freaky. It oscillates between eerie, discomforting, slow and quiet parts. The longer they go on, you know that things aren't right. And yet, the quiet and the, the lack of speed and tempo maybe subconsciously puts you at ease. And then, bam, it bludgeons you. And it can make for an uncomfortable, unenjoyable listen. But that's only because of how well that works. It's also a weird score musically. Again, and probably sick of this now, there's a lot of really odd uses of vocals 
and weird electronics too. It's definitely on the more experimental side of things with horror music, or as far as horror scores go. But if you've been listening to me for a while, you'd know that that's really up my alley. A horror score that is kind of the opposite, that really doesn't push boundaries, was Hocus Pocus 2 by John Debney. And it's interesting that this film exists at all. I think there was a really long and loud contingent of people that loved it from whenever it released in the 90s and have been clamoring for a new entry for the last 25 years, let's say. And finally it's here. It came with a bit of hype and then released and almost disappeared. Look, it's a really solid score. It's nice to have something that's a bit more orchestral and symphonic in the horror world. You don't really get that as much. Even when you know more traditional instruments are used, it's often done in a more dissonant way, with a lot of stingers. But Debney's score is much more melodic, and it's something to kind of expect from him. And I say that in a good way, not a dismissive way, not in a, you know, this is conventional and typical, and let's hear him do something new. It's really nice at this point in film music and where the landscape is to have a very talented composer reliably doing orchestral symphonic scores. But there's something that feels a bit derivative with this, or at least very familiar. You hear these melodies and they're good, but in the back of your mind you go, I have to have heard this somewhere else. That said, I don't know where. And there's nothing wrong with making something that feels familiar. Now, I think that gets us away from horror. 15 minutes of horror. I hope you didn't get too sick of it. But moving slightly away, I guess in theory, Prey could count as a horror film, although it's really more of an action film. It's Prey with a score by Sarah Schachner. I wasn't really that familiar with her prior work. I know that she'd done a lot of video game work on some of the biggest franchises, including Assassin's Creed and Call of Duty, but I don't know if I'd ever listen to them. Maybe one listen here or there, but that's it. And this is a score in a film, really, that came with high expectations and a high bar to meet, and it's great. I mean, the film is really cool, a lot of fun, but her score is also just very good. It's really, really percussive heavy, but there's also like a very good thematic usage, and in something that, especially nowadays, where a big, you know, epic cinematic, and I use those in quotes, feel is so much more popular and prevalent, she could have easily gone that way, but instead it's a bit more of a restrained, heroic melody that lets things get a bit more intimate and lets you connect with the main character and the journey that she's going through and the tribulations and trials that she's facing. And I have to point out, a lot of people complained that she didn't use the original Predator theme. One, I don't think it matters. The whole Predator world is really an anthology that features some Predator in the film, and that's it. It can take place at any time, any location. And so the the use of old themes 
doesn't feel as necessary. There's no recurring characters. The predator itself comes from this species that has different ethnicities and races to it. So it's a tenuous connection. But that said, it does actually appear, at least in pieces, in the first track. Another interesting aspect, and one that I won't dwell on too long, is how much of a life this film and this score had. Quite often, I mean, take Hocus Pocus 2, for instance, there's a build-up, it releases, and then feeling like immediately when it comes out, it's gone. But Prey lasted a long time. It's nice in a, an era that seems to have content, and I hate that word, that seems to have films and scores and music more broadly in such a disposable way, where it comes and goes very quickly, and if it doesn't make a big splash instantly, it gets discarded by the algorithm, and therefore discarded by us. It's nice to see something that lasts a little bit. Now, going in a totally different direction is Michael Dana's score for Where the Crawdads Sing. And I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about this film, or this score, but when I saw that the score release opened with a Taylor Swift song, I rolled my eyes and thought, oh, this is not going to be for me. And that's even knowing Dana's name was attached to it. What a stupid way to have these sorts of biases. All it does is, yeah, sometimes your, your initial biases and your you know, heuristics you employ have upsides. But I think so often, especially when it comes to film or music or other arts, all it does is close your mind and close you off to things that you might otherwise enjoy. And so while I went into this score with that on my mind, I still listened, of course. And I'm glad I did. It's a really cool score. I thought it was going to be a bit sappy and saccharine and overly romantic, but the first several cues are kind of eerie and atmospheric, as if there is something unknown lurking in the bayou, and if you're not careful, it's going to come for you. And that tinge of darkness on unknown remains throughout, but it's lifted when you hear the intimate, romantic, southern gothic feel of the rest of Dana's score. I said it's romantic, and it's enticing, and it's just a little bit dangerous. One that really surprised me was Hector Pereira's score for Minions, The Rise of Gru. I have a bad habit of writing off scores for children's films, and I've been proven wrong so many times, and yet it's a a bias that persists where I think it's going to be something that's too childish. But Rise of Gru is like a really cool, funky, 70s crime heist score. I have no idea what the movie's like. And I like imagining how that music fits in. But it's such a cool homage and throwback. And one that, having no idea going into it, was such a fascinating surprise that caught me off guard and made me eat my words. Another surprise was Dominic Lewis's score for Bullet Train. It was a surprise because it is such a massive genre mash. I talked to Dominic when the film released back in August, I think, and he said that 
the hope was, in part, to make you feel like you're listening or hearing like forgotten songs and tracks from the 70s. So here we have that connection, the 70s connection with Minions, Rise of Gru. Who'd have thought I'd say that? And it's so misleading watching the film because I saw it first before really diving into the music. And there were so many tracks that I thought were licensed that were actually originals by Dominic. You know, it's a film set in Japan on a bullet train. So there's, there's a lot of Japanese influences in there. There's also some Western spaghetti Western influences. There's like 90s, 2000s electronic dance music in there. There's just so much going on. It makes for a scattered listen on its own. One that there are through lines during the whole thing. There are a lot of motifs and sub-themes that tie it all together. But I think the sheer span of the genres can throw people off. But it's a challenge. It's a fun challenge. And yet watching the film, you kind of don't think about it at all. The huge mash fits because there are so many disparate characters throughout that have very distinct, different personas. And through that lens, it all kind of comes together. It's kind of astounding how busy a year Michael Giacchino's had. And one of his big collaborators in the last few years is Nami Melamod. Apologies if I pronounced either her first or last name wrong. But they teamed up on Thor, Love, and Thunder. And maybe it's a bit of a mixed bag, or at least a mixed bag for me relative to some of other Giacchino's work. It starts off really, really cool. Love that first track and a few of the other tracks throughout. But I think the length of it dilutes the excitement a little bit. And maybe it's a superhero fatigue. I don't know if that exists, given that Black Panther just released to huge numbers. But maybe it's a mixture of that. Maybe it's doing too many things in one year. But it felt surprisingly weaker that if it was rather than an hour plus stripped down to an hour or 45 minutes of just the strongest pieces would be a fantastic release. Now that said, and even Jurassic World Dominion was a score that I wasn't crazy about, although I still thought it was very good. This is another good score. Very good, surprising, going back to the shelf life of things, feels like it came and went. Surprising. One of the maybe big surprises for me this year is Junkie XL's score for 3,000 Years of Longing. I'm often not the biggest fan of Junkie XL's music. I think a big part is just that big, percussive style is not necessarily my favorite. Here, and maybe it's because I'm not a huge fan of that type of style, I love his score for 3,000 Years of Longing. It's shorter, which is, I think, a huge upside. But it's also really restrained and intimate. And I know the score that people really dismiss, the film that people dismiss, was Army of the Dead. But there's a three-track suite in there. I can't remember the names, but from the names, they're obviously related and meant to be listened to together. That was oddly touching and resonant. And something that I hadn't really heard from him at all. 
And 3,000 years of longing feels like taking that and spreading it out over 30 minutes, a full score. And I love that. And I really think that that's where he's best at. It just happens to be somewhere that he doesn't explore very often. The sound itself is very, and I hate this because it, it really points out how little I know about the musical style, but it gives off a very Persian Middle Eastern feel that obviously stems from the jinn that the film centers around. And there's a question and an uncertainty for me when I listened to it was how much of this is a, a pastiche or a regurgitation of that sound? I don't know. Maybe none of it is. Maybe all of it is. I candidly am a total philistine when it comes to that and don't know anything about the music's or styles that served as an inspiration or jumping off point. That's a conversation for somebody else to have. But at the end of the day, it's a score that I really liked and was very pleasantly surprised about. And I realize as this often happens, I'm going on for too long, so I'll, I'll wrap up quickly. One more score that I really wanted to dig into was Blonde by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. It's a composing duo that really are doing some of the best scores of the last 10 years, let's say, 15 years. Like the proposition was 15 years ago. A great film, great piece of music. But Blonde is a really fascinating score because it lives in two worlds. There's a dreamy aspect and a nightmarish aspect. There's a spacey, detached element to it. But there's also a haunted interiority. And it takes you on this really clever, nuanced journey, jumping between the perceptions that we have of Marilyn Monroe, but also what's going on internally in those horrors. It's a, a film that I think, unfortunately, drew a lot of division. And often when that happens, it has a blowback on the score as well. But I think this is one that when people are looking back on this year, in a month, two months, will remember, oh yeah, this was good. There's a few others that quickly, quickly, quickly I will run through, because you don't want to hear me talk for 15 more minutes about another half dozen scores. Inuo by Otomo Yoshihide. Really cool. It's a score that when I listen to it, sometimes I get, I get lost because it, stylistically goes on such a cogent yet long journey and in that journey it's a lot of really really weird aspects and now i've heard that it was also released in may and in august i'm not sure which is right but because i didn't cover it when i was talking about the films released in april may and june i'm talking about it now it's a lot to bite off highly recommend it Take a little bite and chew for a bit. See how you like it. Stamisar by Carl Johann Sevedag. Really cool, big 60s lounge feel. That's also just really strange. A Medieval by Philip Klein. Apparently this film's three and a half hours long. So good for Klein on having an epic medieval score that doesn't go too far into the epic where you roll your eyes at it. There's a lot of intimacy in there, which really goes a long way. Strong thematic orchestral work. Again, though, it's a film that 
It was very expensive and completely bombed at the box office. And as a result, Klein's score kind of disappeared. I'm still rambling. So a few more great ones. Pinocchio by Alan Silvestri. I'd love to compare that to the, the music for the original and see whether there is a comparison, whether there's overlap or whether it's something completely new. Don't Worry Darling by John Powell. Very, very weird score. Super unorthodox. Tough listen because of that, but fascinating stuff. Gigi and Nate by Paul Leonard Morgan. Great piano-driven work. See How They Run by Daniel Pemberton. Yet another great and energetic jazzy score. Uh, the Bad Guys was another one in that vein released earlier this year. In uh, October, he released Amsterdam. Again, a killer jazz score. The thing that I'm annoyed about now for Pemberton is he does so many excellent scores for films that kind of go under the radar, a bit like Alexander Desplat. And it's frustrating because there's a world of people that should listen to this and I think would like it, but don't even know that it's out there. And finally, The Woman King by Terrence Blanchard. A very, very cool score. I actually really dug the film as well. I know it brought on some controversy, but uh, that is beyond the scope of this show. Blanchard wish he was more prolific because he seems to always knock out of the park. Well, I hope you found that interesting. A few scores that you haven't heard, or if they're ones you've had, maybe they've given you a different perspective, or at the very least reinforced your understanding that if I liked it and you liked it, it means you've got great taste in film music. Now, as always, more interviews on the way, theoretically some big ones. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but fingers crossed and let's see what happens.